If you have your Bible, we're going to be in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18 through chapter 3, verse 10. And it's going to be fun. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, it is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now little children abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but what we know, but we know that when he appears we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Everybody excited about Antichrist Sunday? Friends, that word shouldn't bug us. It shouldn't cause us to fear. And our imaginations shouldn't do too much with it because it is a simple term for John. It has complex ramifications about Jesus' return, but he means it quite simply. Let me say something, because I I had to wrestle with this text quite a bit this week. If you're a note taker, I want you to know that point one is going to be verses 18 through 23. 
Point two, verses 24 through 27. Point three, verses 28 through 33. And point four, verses four through 10. And if you're not a note taker, that's fine. But for you note takers, I just wanted you to know that. It might give you an additional assist in understanding me, especially if I start talking too fast. Who on that side is going to tell me if I'm talking too fast? Thank you. Just one of you. We'll go with the black shirt, blonde hair. What about over here? You got it, Rob? All right, thank you. Jesus told his followers that people would show up, use his name, and then misrepresent his name. Matthew 24, he describes this before he then talks about part of the end times, which was the very sad and horrific destruction of Jerusalem, and another part of the end times, which is when he returns. John is referencing that. He's comfortable with the teachings of Jesus. He didn't write as much about it because I assume he thought Matthew covered it sufficiently. He said it would be a sign of this age, the age between Jesus' showing up to destroy the works of the devil and showing up again when he removes every trace of those effects. And I don't know about you, but my imagination gets all messed up. I remember the first movie that I saw that appropriated these things pretty wrongly. It's called The Seventh Sign, and it was terrifying. And the Jesus figure was very kind and quiet. And at the end, a human changed all the course of events for the end of the world, and Jesus like just kind of slowly leaves. Good job, ma'am. Something like that. I was like nine. Perhaps for you it was Hal Lindsey, or the Thief in the Night movies in the 70s, or Constantine, the Keanu Reeves movie, or Left Behind. These series are imaginatively fun. Don't not enjoy them, but then go back to Scripture and explore the question of whether they're scriptural, as we might think. And my problem with it is not so much the content, but how that content can distract us from kind of a straightforward explanation of a certain kind of antichrist. In this case, people had left the church. That doesn't make them antichrists. But they had left because they had begun saying, Jesus is great and he saves, but he wasn't a physical being. The church started having councils a few centuries after this when it stopped being illegal to be a Christian. They started working these things out. We still work them out in some level. But what happened, and, it, and, and I'm gathering this simply from 1 John chapter 2 and chapter 3. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would, not have continued with the, they would have continued with us. John's kind of writing a tongue twister here. And if you read it in the Greek, it's even worse in terms of the, the way the syllables go. But he's like, they left. And they left because they were teaching that Jesus was something that he wasn't. They were saying he was just spirit, not flesh. I'm going to describe it as medium-level disorientation. Those of you that have ever been a part of a church community and appreciated it for any length of time, you know that when people leave, it stings, depending upon why and how. People should actually change churches for doctrinal reasons, but not too much else. In this case, if you believe that Jesus saves but didn't have a physical being and you start teaching that, it's not going to go great because it's not true. These people were teaching that 
and they led some people astray, but not so many that John's super bummed out. But he's writing to encourage definitely the church in Ephesus and probably the other churches in Asia Minor, what we now call Turkey. I think that those people teaching that were trying to bring in Greek thinkers because Greek thinkers absolutely could not handle the idea of the logos, which they had some concept of, coming to the world in the sarks. It's the Greek word for idea. Uh, It's where we get the word logic. Um, And sarks is flesh. To a Greek thinker, it's almost a cuss word. And it is a cuss word if you're talking about anything divine. Those things cannot coexist. And so I think these teachers both believed that, but then they were excited to teach it because they're like, maybe we'll get more Greek converts. And you've seen the church do similar things. Water down the message of Christ. Try and make some of his commands not seem so clear. Make it a little more fun and lively. I was trying to think what I would tell myself if I could go back to say like 2000 about marriage. I think it would be something like this. It's going to be better than you think, but you have been sold a bill of goods by the church. And it's going to take a while to unravel that. And that's all I could say, because, you know, my, my past self wouldn't listen to my future self. And like, but they told me if I would do it this way. And maybe you did not have that experience. But in the 90s, I remember the way the church talked about Christian marriage. And they were teaching true orthopraxy, acting like a follower of Jesus. But then they were promising things that are not in the scriptures. That's not what the opponents or the leavers in 1 John did. But I'm giving that as an example. Look at verse 20. It says, you've been anointed. What does John mean when he says anointed? I think verse 23 tells us what verse 20 and 21 and 22 are getting at. Verse 23 says, no one who denies the son has the father. Whoever confesses the son has the father also. So if you confess that Jesus is Lord, you've been anointed in the sense that you're going to be a king. No. In the same way that certain objects were anointed in the temple for the utility of God. That's that's John's way of saying that you, as a follower of God, God, are called into agency, first by receiving his love in faith, and then by acting like a follower of Jesus. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Verse 23 is the gift of God to you. And it explains that you are called into his kingdom and story. That means work in the world, both includes your vocation and your neighborhood and the family of origin. What kind of TV do you guys like? Drama? Comedy? What do you call like all the CSI type shows? Like from a genre standpoint, what would we call those? Crime? Crime television? Sure. So in the same way that when we turn on the television, we have to adapt to the type of TV we're watching. This goes for film, books, 
forms of art, if you go to a sculpture show ex expecting to see Impressionist painting, you're going to have to adapt. Same thing with reading the Bible, or better yet, allowing it to read us. John is going to speak in exaggeration. He's going to speak sermonically. He's going to tell you you don't need any more information. Is that true? No. But what does he mean? Compared to those who left the church, do you have enough information to be saved and to grow in Christ? Yes. As you explore the scriptures, whether you do so slowly or quickly or with lots of study materials or just the text, some of my favorite Bibles are the ones that don't have verse numbers in them. It keeps me from getting too distracted. We must pay attention to the kind of book that it is. John was contemporary with Paul and James and Peter, and he wrote a different kind of sermonic pamphlet, which is what 1 John is, which is why I enjoy reading it and kind of letting the words roll over us. We kind of know the point that he's making, but you can take certain things out of context, especially some of the Antichrist stuff, and really get thrown off. So in the last hour, meaning the time between Jesus' coming and second coming, which we are in also, we get to abide. Let, I'm in verse 24 now, abide. This is very New Testament tone. The beginning of our faith is receiving his pursuing love. John is going to use the word abide 24 times in these short five chapters. This particular chapter, it's statistically used once in every 16 words. So he really wants us to understand the profound gift of our faith and abide in it. John sees joy available to you that you're not enjoying. This, he, he was not picturing you. He was picturing a church in Ephesus. But by the Holy Spirit's providence and provision for us, it applies to us also. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. That's the point of the letter. And when we learn to abide in that, there is joy available to us that previously we had been missing. I'm not, I don't have a great mat version of the word abide for a couple of reasons. One, I think you kind of know. Two, it's a pretty simple word, meno. In the Greek. I can tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean leave. It means stay. To use some barn-ish language, continue to worship the Father, Son, and Spirit. Continue in community with these fine people. Conversational, prayerful community. It means stay faithfully present with those God has put into your life. What are there, a hundred or so of us? And every single one of us has a unique group of people that God has put into our lives. Overlaps probably with the people sitting next to you, and yet there are some uniquenesses. God has put those people into your lives for all sorts of reasons. One of them is for you to love them. That includes these people. Hello, aunt. I should say ants. One of the ways that we abide as a church and as a denomination is we keep studying these things. Did you know that? 
It's interesting with our elders trying to lead myself and them in it. I got something wrong with the Westminster Confession of Faith this week, which was good because I got to go back and study it. Some of you don't even know what the Westminster Confession of Faith is. Think of our uh, church and our denomination as like a human body. The Westminster Confession of Faith is like the backbone. It's not that great to look at, but without it, you know, we would fall over. We also have a book of government. We also study things and, and put out pastoral letters and position papers as the world continues to churn and reject us, just like John said it was going to. And we do that as a way of abiding in the world that we might more and more clearly and faithfully articulate Jesus and his ways to each other and to the world. John is interested in orthodoxy, understanding that Jesus is the propitiation of our sins, that he atones for us, and orthopraxy, that when we understand who Jesus is, of course, we move towards one another in love. In the last hour, we abide because he is our hope. And friends, there's a a wide spectrum amongst us in terms of interest in theology and theological terms. But listen, anytime you say words about God, you're doing theology. You are a theologian. Might as well own it. You don't have to have the library of whoever to understand that. Anytime we talk about God, we're doing theology, regardless of age, regardless of knowledge. And we must understand what John was opposing the people who had left the church, because there is no gospel if Jesus is not flesh and divine. There is no salvation if Jesus is not flesh and divine. There's no hope. There's no abiding or living faith. Denying that Jesus came in the flesh is actually denying that Jesus is the Christ. John doesn't spend a lot of time explaining why. He spends time explaining that to deny one is to deny everything. So we get to continue to learn and be gripped by that. And if you have never doubted that, I'm so grateful. Many of my favorite uh, Christian skeptics, this was what they wrestled with the hardest. How could this be? My role in equipping you is to help us understand John who wants you to know that letting go of one is letting go of everything. And then he asks that we might be confident. And man, I have heard some preachers take uh, verses like this and be pushy with them in shaming ways. Very much not my goal. In verse 1, No, where did it go? I've written all over 1 John to help me understand it. I started making little symbols and squiggly lines and things like that because he's not going sequentially. He's not making an argument that goes A, B, C, D. So I started having to draw all over it and that means I can't always find the verse I'm looking for. There it is, verse 28. And now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Are you confident that when you see Jesus, 
he will know that your allegiance was to him. I am not asking if you're confident you did enough. That's the way the evil one twists scriptures like this and twists our imagination and utilizes our emotions. I'm not asking if you were enough. Of course you're not enough. Only Jesus is enough. Of course you didn't do enough. You are a limited creature and so am I. With all of your limits, with all of your joys, with all the harm that has been done to you, with all the circumstances of your life, with all of your strength and specific nobilities and beauties, all that mixed together that Jesus sees perfectly, are you confident that he can see your allegiance to him? Probably the most regular question that I get from people is, how am I sure? It's a gift of the Holy Spirit. John assumes you have it, I hope that you are. I think many of you have served him faithfully for a long, long time and that he has given you assurance that you are indeed beloved and you have confidence standing before him. Not that you did everything right. Of course you didn't. Not that you were ever enough for any other human or any other work in this world, but that your allegiance was to him, not to yourself or before him to anything else. John's writing in this tension in verses 2 and 3 of man or woman left to their own devices without the Holy Spirit, redeemed human still in the world under the curse, and then the renewed human. Listen to verses 2 and 3. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know him. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Every New Testament writer, especially if you accept the kind of letter or book that they wrote, spends energy helping us understand this. There's men and women who do not know God. There are men and women who know God and live under the curse, and there are men and women who will be redeemed. And they're not different. They're just explaining to us the stages of the life of a follower of Jesus. And I want you to notice verse 2b in chapter 3. And this was really convicting to me as a preacher because oftentimes when I talk to you about heaven and the new heavens and the new earth, I talk about what won't be there. And there's some good news there. But the best part of heaven and the best part of the new heavens and the new earth is seeing Jesus face to face. If you hear nothing else in this sermon, because this will give peace to your soul and because it's true, the best future promise we receive is to see Jesus face to face. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. The very face of Jesus purifies us, takes away all those over-desires that John talked about in chapter 2. In the last hour, we abide 
because he is our hope and we are his children. I think uh, John uses affectionate parent-child language for a whole bunch of reasons, and one of them is because children look like their parents. And one of the things that the Holy Spirit is doing is ever renewing us day by day, sanctifying us and making us more like Christ. That both involves removing things and growing in some things and relearning some things. John goes round and round about sin and lawlessness and abiding and sinning and the devil and righteousness. And what he's saying is, there's a full expectation that your faith, allegiance and love for Jesus is growing you up and maturing you away from patterns of sin into patterns of righteousness. That's the point of verses 4 through 10. I have begun to not have to tell myself every Sunday that it's okay that I'm not funnier. And listen, listen, this is important. Those of you that think I'm funny, don't come tell me after church because it would be ironically bad. And if I'm the funniest pastor you've ever heard, I just have this to say, I'm sorry. Because there are some really funny preachers. And the reason I do make jokes, like that mediocre one I just made, is because it loosens us up and allows us to hear some of the heavier things of Scripture. But here's something that I'm growing in. Joking less, not so much in the sermons, but in conversations with you people. Because first of all, it needs to be funny, and sometimes it's not, and I'm just speaking about jokes, not theology. But more importantly, it needs to not be offensive. And I have offended some people with jokes. So I'm joking less. This is one of the ways that the Holy Spirit is growing me up as a human being, regardless of whether I'm your pastor or friend or both. And I'm so thankful because I would like to hurt people less. Does your sin bother you? That is proof of the Holy Spirit in you, growing and maturing you in love. I took a bunch of kids to a junior high camp. Good grief. 16, 17 years ago. And one of the other leaders asked, how do we know we have the fathers? How do we know that we're in him? And this seventh grader named Ben goes, our sin bothers us. And we were like, whoa. And he had heard a preacher say it, but he was in seventh grade and he remembered it. So we were just like, this is fantastic. What John is getting at in verses four through 10 is increasingly without undue shame, without disproportionate guilt, without feeling terribly, we long to be better at loving those that God has put into our lives. John expects growth. He expects his listeners and hearers to expect growth. I referenced this earlier with respect to marriage, but that's not the only place. I'd love to go talk to my freshman year self about basketball and what to do to train and what not to do. I'd really like to talk to myself before I had children. But you know what's better than a time machine? Repentance and healing. What's better for my kids is for them to have seen me grow up in faith and understand that that's the Christian life. 
not getting it right, not avoiding every mistake, but growing up and maturing in love. The humility that necessarily accompanies that is better than not making mistakes. My wife got me a stamp years ago, like, you know, stamp. And it says, I sincerely apologize for all the trouble I've caused. If you know me, you're laughing right now. And if you don't, you're like, that's an interesting thing to get someone. I make a lot of mistakes. But God will not let me go because he loves me that much and he's growing me in love. And if you are, if you have put your faith in Jesus, he is doing the exact same thing in your life. And that is a lovely part of the good news. That's not the good news. The good news is Jesus. But what accompanies Jesus is him growing us up in love. I don't think I need to make my last two points here. I think we've got it. I think we've wrestled successfully with 1 John and his challenge to us to live like the beloved women and men that we are. Unless you need a minute, musicians. No, you're good? Okay. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we long to receive your fatherly care and therefore be more patient. Jesus, we long to fully receive and accept you as fully God and fully man and the one who came after us while we were yet sinners. Enliven our spirits to follow you with joy. Holy Spirit, we long to love this very interesting group of people you have put into our lives, both the one here in this gathering of Christ followers and our biological families and our friends and coworkers. Would you empower and enable us, Father, Son, and Spirit, to love because you first loved us. Amen.